Okay, this passage comes from Romans 13, 8 through 14. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The the night is far gone, for the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off all the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Thank you, Christina. Today we come again to uh, Romans chapter 13, where Paul continues to give instructions for living the Christian life. He began in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, after the theology of chapters 1 through 11. And in, uh, verse, in chapter 13, he continues to tell us, instruct us how to live the Christian life. And I think here he's emphasizing in chapter 13 how to live the Christian life in a non-Christian world. How are we who are citizens of heaven and commanded, do not conform to this world. How are we as those who are not of this world, but sent into this world as representatives of Jesus Christ? How are we to live? And so far in chapter 13, we've seen this involves both submission to the state and love for our neighbors, our society. In Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, Paul wrote, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul defines the love we're to have for our neighbors in terms of God's moral law. By keeping God's law, by not murdering or stealing or lying or coveting, etc., by by doing no wrong to our neighbor, we're fulfilling the law. And by doing what is right for our neighbor, we're fulfilling the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which means, among other things, that you are not to avoid your non-Christian neighbors, your secular society. You're, You're to engage them, to seek their welfare, to care for those around you as you care for yourself. Last week we saw this illustrated in the book of Jeremiah, where where God, through the prophet, tells the Jewish exiles living in the pagan city of Babylon, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. As those who are exiles in this world, 
those who are sent into uh, neighborhoods and communities and cities, as we represent Jesus Christ, we're to love and seek the welfare of the places and the people around us where God sends us. And if you need extra motivation to do that, God says, in the welfare of the city, the community around you, you will find your welfare. When your community prospers physically, emotionally, spiritually, you too will prosper in these ways. Love your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean we don't love ourselves. It means to the degree we love and care for ourselves, we do the same for those around us. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this is a a difficult thing to do. Not loving myself, no problem with that. It's loving my neighbor that creates issues. And if this love for my neighbor isn't just the guy on the right, the the family on the right and the left and in front and behind and in my small community, but it, it extends to my city, that makes it even more challenging, right? So how are we to love, uh, to fulfill this law of loving our neighbor as ourselves? And, and in the verses that follow, verses 11 through 14, so I had Christina read uh, to give us context what we looked at last week and what we're going to look at this week. I've been summarizing what we saw last week, and now I'm turning to what we're going to be seeing this week. In the verses that follow, the, the, the commands to to love your neighbor as yourself, Paul seeks to help us in this. He set love for your neighbor as the centerpiece for for societal living. This is the, the crux of it. What am I supposed to do, you ask yourself, in this situation? Uh, What is the loving thing for those around me? That's the answer. Paul said it that way. Last week we saw the law of love. Now we turn to the labor of love. In Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, he's going to give us further instructions, commands, encouragements, and motivations for achieving this level of love. And in verse 11, Paul begins with with this phrase, besides this, besides this, is how it's translated in the ESV, which is what I usually use. This phrase connects uh, what's gone before, fulfilling the law of love, uh, loving your neighbor as as yourself, with what's going to follow, what's coming next. And that word besides can mean a number of things. It's like this conjunction thing that has a, a, a lot of different ways. You have to look at the context. Both the NASB and the NIV, two different English translations, instead of translating it besides this, they translate it, do this. And I think that better captures what Paul is seeking to get across. In order to represent Christ in this non-Christian world, in order to love your neighbor, your society as yourself, do this. There's a a level of action, uh, of work, of of labor involved in loving, loving our neighbors as ourselves. And the first thing Paul tells us to do is to, is to wake up. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, verse 11 says. Besides this, or do this, wake up from sleep. Now just to be clear, 
Paul's not speaking of physical sleep. Uh, my friend, uh, many of you know, Jeff White, he used to say, sleep is overrated. Uh, no. Well, when you're 30-something, maybe. But you, you, when you're in your 50s, as I am, and probably later, uh, sleep, this physical sleep, you need it. It, 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 uh, it escapes me often. So this is not a command to stop taking naps or to, or to try to survive on as little sleep as possible. He's telling us to wake up from our spiritual slumber, to open our eyes to the world around us and see the needs of our neighbors. There's a great sense of urgency here. Paul is sounding the alarm. He's saying the time for lethargy has ended. The time for labor has come. Wake up. Now, why is he, uh, the alarm going off right now? Because the hour has come, he says. That word hour speaks of a, a specific time or, or season. Sometimes it's translated hour. Other times the season has come. That might be a, a better way to look at it here. When Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, entered our world and he lived a perfect life, and he willingly died on the cross for our sins, and, and by the power of God, he rose from the dead, declaring victory over both sin and death. He inaugurated a new hour, a new season, a new time. And that's the season we're in right now. That's the hour, the time we're living in. It's been called uh, uh, the age of grace or the church age. I prefer the church age because God's grace is not limited to any age. God's grace is seen throughout all of history. But this age will continue until Christ returns to judge the world and establish His, His kingdom. So this hour is now. These words are just as relevant and urgent or even more so to us today as they were to the church in Rome when Paul wrote them. Because uh, verse 11 tells us, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Salvation here isn't referring to, you know, the individual act of, of getting saved, of trusting in Christ. It's referring to the future and final redemption when those who trust in Christ will enter God's presence for all eternity. And Paul is saying that that day is growing closer by the minute. Whether you believed 40 years ago or yesterday, your eternal redemption in God's presence draws ever closer, ever nearer. Ever, uh, every moment it draws closer. The complete fulfillment of the great mercy that God has bestowed upon you is drawing nearer. So wake up. There's loving labor to be done. And then Paul, beginning in verse 12, emphasizes this. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. It's daytime, folks. Now, in general, the night, the darkness, uh, uh, is for sleeping. And the day, the light, is for action. Recently, Christine and I bought some of those, uh, what are they called? You don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, those curtains you hang up to keep out the light so you can sleep, right? If, if too much light comes in, you can't sleep, so you've got to keep that light out. Well, that's fine physically. Don't take it to the spiritual uh, realm. 
The day is for action, for getting things done. Paul's saying that the time for sleep, the time for, for doing little or nothing is over. The time to get to work is at hand. In the grand scheme of things, this world will, will, will go on not much longer. The day is at hand. The eternal world, final redemption, the day of judgment uh, is breaking in. And therefore, our time is limited. The clock is running down. Now, Paul wrote these words approximately 2,000 years ago, right? And so, there are those who think he was, uh, he was just mistaken about this. That the day was not at hand. That Paul expected, uh, that Paul expected Christ to return, return and, and the final judgment to come much quicker than it has. But that really misses the point. And ignores the context of these verses. Paul is not making predictions about Christ's coming. He's, he's seeking to instruct and to motivate Christians in how we're to live in this world. How we're to behave until Christ returns. And he wants us to realize not just that the eternal clock is winding down. But that no matter how long it takes Christ to return. Our lives in this world are brief and temporal. As James wrote, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a, a little time and then vanishes. Maybe right now, maybe some of you have, seen, have been to outdoor restaurants and they have those misters on and the mist just comes out and especially when it's really hot, it just comes out and it's gone before it even hits you sometimes. That's our lives. In the uh, medical drama ER. How many people ever watch the show ER? We got a couple hands. Christine and I just recently discovered it, so we began to watch it. One of the main characters, Dr. Mark Green, finds out that he has a, a brain tumor, and after doing all he can medically to treat it, he comes to terms with the fact he only has months to live. This changes his perspective a great deal. He was, he was kind of a workaholic. He lost his first wife because he just was at work all the time. He tries to keep working for a little bit, but as the end draws near, he realizes the most important thing is to spend time with his wife and his daughters. To spend time with them and to love them in ways that he, he had not previously. His imminent death changes his priorities, his perspective. And Paul is saying that as Christians, we're to have th this kind of eternal perspective. We're to have different priorities. We need to live and to love like the end is near, uh, because it truly is. And this should not cause us to fear, oh, the, you know, the guy with the sandwich board, oh, the end is, repent, the end is at hand. You know, maybe in our world today, it seems like the end is at hand, and and, 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 and maybe that causes some fear, but it, it shouldn't. It should cause rejoicing. Because the, the glorious truth is that each day of our lives, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And eternal life... Let me say this. Uh, for those who don't know Christ, fear. But you don't have to fear if you know Christ. Because an eternal life... A life filled with joy in the presence and love of God most assuredly awaits each and every one of us. We read from Romans 8, you know, 
had to delete it from here, but we read from Romans 8 this morning, right? Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Your salvation is assured in Christ if you've trusted in Him. And that should cause us to wake up and to live a life based not on temporal things, but on eternal things. Things, like, uh, things that last, like truth and God and loving your neighbor and living righteously in this world. I think Jesus' words in His Sermon on the Mount fit well with what Paul is saying. He, he, he said, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, which so, which so many of us are seeking to do. Because uh, here, moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your heart? Have you got this new perspective? Live with eternal, not a temporal perspective. Our lives are are just a, a blip, right? Know that your time on earth is limited, so don't waste it. Use it for the glory of God. Use it for the good of others, which glorifies God, by the way. Use the time you have to fulfill the law of love, to labor in love for other people. Believers are to wake up from spiritual lethargy and love their neighbors while they have the opportunity to do so. We ought to be like the boy whose family clock malfunctioned and struck 15 times so that he rushed wide-eyed to his mother crying, Mommy, it's later than it's ever been before. What, what sanctifying logic, right? We must keep in mind that if Christ does not return in our time, He will certainly come individually to each one of us in death. Each ache, each pain, each gray hair, each new wrinkle, each new funeral is a reminder that it is later than it has ever been before. It's time to love our neighbors as ourselves. So are we all awake now? Wake up. Do we understand that our time on earth is limited? And that in this time, God has called us to represent Him. That's our primary job. To glorify Him, to represent Him, and and to glorify Him in this world. To be His ambassadors. Ambassadors of His love. And to do that, we need to live in a certain way. Once we wake up, we must walk righteously. That's our second point. One of the greatest ways to show uh, love for our neighbors, for your society, is to live a righteous life. To obey God's moral laws. Particularly the ones uh, that tell us how to treat one another. We saw that last week as Paul wrote, "For, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he goes on to list several of the Ten Commandments as examples of the kind of love that fulfills the law. We love others when we obey God's commands. Commands that tell us how to, how to treat people and how to not treat people. And then in verses 12 and 13, Paul gives a series of instructions calling us to live righteously. 
to live not as we did in the past, in the darkness, when we were asleep, before we knew Christ, but to live in the present, in the light, in the light, knowing the time is now, the hour has come. Paul says, knowing the night is far gone, the day is at hand, it's time to act, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Quit playing around, quit dabbling in your old life, quit going back to where you were. In these verses, Paul acknowledges the fact that even though our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, even though our sins have been forgiven, we've been declared righteous. I mean, we've got the background of Romans chapters 1 through 8. We've been declared righteous. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no con- condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even though all of that is true. However, as long as we're still in this world, as representatives of Jesus Christ, there's a need to battle against sin, to wage war against the forces of darkness, that we might represent Christ by walking righteously in this world. And to do that, Paul says, we must first cast off the works of darkness. Darkness is a symbol for evil, for sin. These works of sin and evil are no longer to be part of the life of a Christian. We're to cast them off. Fling them aside like filthy rags. Have you ever found yourself or your clothes particularly covered in mud or dirt or grease? Maybe you were working outside in the yard or on your car. No matter how hard I try, uh, I, when I change my oil in my car, I seem to get extremely dirty. I've done cra- I've set up towels and things, and somehow the oil gets in my eyes even sometimes. And once I'm done, the first thing I want to do is get off my dirty clothes, get them off, to cast them off, to fling them into the laundry or, or sometimes even into the trash. It's that bad. So in the physical world, the need to cast off the dirt, the filth that we accumulate is clear, right? We don't want to walk around filthy. But the same thing should be true or truer in the spiritual world. There are things we do, some of which Paul will list shortly, that we need to cast off. They are no longer to be part of our lives. Knock it off, Paul says. Just quit it. They do not represent Christ, and they are the opposite of love. But casting off these works of darkness is only the beginning. If we stop there, if that's all he said, that's all I preach, just stop it. Just quit it, you know? Sometimes that was my parenting style. Didn't go well often. If we stop there, then what we cast off will soon return. One of the major mistakes that that we Christians make, I've made it, is to only engage in, in a partial battle against sin. Again and again, we seek to cast off the works of darkness. We pray and we vow to never do it again, whatever it is. But in time, again and again, whatever it is seems to return. Or if it doesn't, we replace it with something even worse. Or we replace it with what we, uh, uh, what we might not perceive as worse, pride. 
And I believe the reason for this is because we only engage in the first part of the battle. We empty ourselves of, of, of sinful acts for a time, but we don't fill ourselves with anything else. And this creates a, a vacuum, if you will, in our lives. If you suck all the air out of something, that's what a vacuum does. Unless you fill it with something else, the air will find its way back in. So along with casting off the works of darkness from our lives, ridding ourselves from sin, Paul says, put on the armor of light. So you've cast off your dirty clothes, and now you're putting on the armor of light. Now what does that mean? What is the armor of light? Well, one thing the word armor implies as we've said, is there's a battle going on here. Armor is not everyday clothing. It's what you put on when you go to war. And in contrast to the works of darkness, we're to put on the armor of light. We're to wear armor that shines into the darkness. Armor that enables us to engage in the battle between light and darkness. So what is this armor? Well, Paul doesn't spell it out here, but, but in several other places he does. Using similar language in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, he writes, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet of hope, of the hope of salvation. Notice that Paul also here speaks of day and night. And he tells us to put on the armor, the breastplate of faith and love, helmet of hope, of salvation. Then in, in Ephesians 6, maybe the, uh, certainly the most famous, definitive passage, detailed passage about armor, he writes this. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. These are the forces of darkness that can cause us to participate in the works of darkness. And it's the armor of light, the armor of God, the daytime armor that enables us to achieve victory. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day as the days draw near. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can ex extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now that deserves uh, several sermons, that passage, so we don't have time for that. We're not going to go through the meanings of each of the pieces of armor. But I want you to notice that each piece is designed to strengthen our walk, to help us stand firm. Uh, to be able to fight against the forces of darkness in our world and in our lives. 
to bring truth and righteousness and faith and salvation and the gospel of peace and the word of God into our lives and, and, and then taking it into the world. So as we cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, we're able to live, to walk righteously, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And then Paul, Paul gets more specific. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. It's daytime. Put on the armor of light and cast off the works of darkness, including first there must be no orgies and drunkenness. When these words are used together, they picture a a selfish, drunken individual having a a so-called quote-unquote good time. Caring only for himself and his needs. Not caring about others in his society. The Christian who wants to love must set aside such selfish and harmful practices. Second, there's to be no sexual immorality and sensuality. Sexual immorality here is the Greek word which can simply mean bed. And all that... uh, points to. And the word rendered sensuality is one of the ugliest words in the Greek language. It describes one who is not only given to immorality, but is incapable of feeling shame. He or she is is a user of people for his own pleasures. The Christian who wants to love must understand that, that one cannot both love people and live for their own sexual or any other worldly pleasures. Then third, specific uh, work of darkness. We're called to abstain from quarreling and jealousy. This phrase describes someone who, who cannot stand to be wrong, cannot stand to be second best. It describes a person who begrudges others their success and their position. And seeks, therefore, to put them down, to put them in their place. Paul's saying that such behavior must not exist in the heart which truly loves a neighbor. Now, you may be thinking, I'm so glad this list of sins does not describe me. Two things I would say to that. First, may none of us be so naive as to think any of this does not apply to us without the power of God at work in our lives, all of us are susceptible and uh, would willingly go into these things, these and many other sins. In fact, these evils are the precise reasons there's, there's too little love in the church and in the world. And these evils can creep into our lives if we're not seeking in the power of the Spirit to walk righteously. So first, don't think this does not apply to you. And second, these are only examples of of the sins that can keep us from loving others, that are the opposite of loving others. Notice that all of them, uh, uh, like all sin, are selfish in nature. The focus is on me, what I need, what I want. They're seeking to meet our personal, physical, or emotional needs. And there are so many more, quote-unquote, lesser 
Sins that, that do the same thing. Pride and gossip and lying and coveting, just to name a few. We must seek to walk righteously. And what that means is we shift our focus off ourselves, focusing instead on, on God, the giver of our righteousness, and other people who God calls us to love as ourselves. So in order to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're to wake up, and we're to walk righteously. And finally, and, and most importantly, we're to wear Christ. Now that might sound a little crass, but it does sum up what Paul uh, is telling us in verse 14. But, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify, to gratify its desires. Here the command is to put on Christ. Or as the NIV puts it, to clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Wear Christ. Now from one perspective, we're already wearing Christ. In Galatians 3.27, Paul writes, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Past tense. Done deal. When we trust in Christ, when we're baptized, when as baptism symbolizes... We die to ourself and we're raised to new life in Christ. We've already put on Christ. We're already legally righteous before God. We're legally in Him. We're covered with Him. We'll experience no condemnation from Him. We've seen and we've discussed this truth throughout the book of Romans. But here in Romans 13, Paul is speaking not legally, but practically. He's speaking of the practical day-to-day, repeatedly putting on Christ. We're to embrace Him again and again and again. Making no provision for the flesh. Hearkening back to those works of darkness. Never seeking to gratify our past, sinful, worldly, dark desires. The night is gone, the day has come, so live in the light, not in the darkness. This is much like uh, we saw in Romans Romans chapter 6, in which we are told, you are dead to sin, and then told, now act dead to sin. Because who God has already declared you to be, become who God has already declared you to be. He's declared you to be righteous, now live righteously, put on Christ. Ray Stedman gives this illustration. When I get up in the morning, I put on my clothes, intending them to be part of me all day, to go where I go and do what I do. They cover me and and make me presentable to others. That is the purpose of clothes. In the same way, the apostle is saying to us, put on Christ Jesus when you get up in the morning. Make Him a part of your life that day. Intend that He go with you wherever you go. And that He act through you in everything you do. Call upon His resources. Live your life in Christ. Paul emphasizes that it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we put on. We bow to Him. He's our Lord. He's our King. One final point. Harkening back to the deleted scene from the 
from the announcements, the call to worship. It's putting on Christ. That's where we gain the capacity to love. Loving on this level comes from the negative of putting off the deeds of darkness and the positive of putting on the armor of light, putting on Christ day by day. We must constantly do this. It's only when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Our ability to love comes from Him. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. Romans 5, 5 says, God love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And the love we receive from God through the Holy Spirit is the love that we're able to love both God with and our neighbors with. His great love is the source and the motivation of our love. This principle was uh, dramatically illustrated on the human level in the life of a, a woman named Catherine Laws. When Lewis Laws became the warden of Sing Sing Prison in 1920, the inmates uh, existed in wretched conditions. This led him to introduce humanitarian reforms. He gave much of the credit to his wife Catherine. However, Sorry, I missed something there. Catherine, who always treated the prisoners as human beings. She would often take her three children and sit with uh, gangsters and murderers and racketeers while, while they played basketball and baseball. Then in 1937, Catherine was killed in a car accident. The next day, her body lay in a casket in a house about a quarter of a mile from the institution. When the acting warden found hundreds of prisoners crowded around the main entrance, he, he knew what they wanted. Opening the gate, he said, men, I'm going to trust you. You can go to the house. No count was taken, no guards were posted, yet not man, one man was missing that night. Love for, for one who had loved them made them, it changed them, it made them dependable. Of course, this should be infinitely more true in relationship to God's love for us and through us. God's sacrifice for us, His love and mercy, the mercies lavished upon us ought to make us completely dependable in our showing of love to our world. How wonderful it would be if the majority of the church began to do this. Surely such love would be so amazing that it would engulf whole continents. A second century critic of Christianity said this, Assuredly, this confederacy should be rooted out and execrated, hated. That's what that word means, loathed. For they know one another by secret marks and signs, and they love one another almost before they know one another. They love one another almost before they know one another. Promiscuously, they call one another brother and sister. May God help us to love like this. May God help us to wake up, to know our time is limited, and to live as ambassadors of Christ's love, walking righteously in this world. 
living a, a righteous life that results in loving our neighbors as ourselves and wearing Christ. Living the reality of being in Christ. Christ who by His power, by His Spirit, empowers us to love others, to love our neighbors as ourselves. No way we can accomplish that without Christ. And as Sean comes to lead us in communion this morning, I'd ask that you join me in prayer. That as we see the extent of Christ's love for us symbolized in the bread and the cup, that we would be motivated and empowered to love those around us in new and powerful ways. Ways that point not to us, but to the one we represent in this world, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much, first of all, for your great love for us. We pray, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that we would wake up, that we would know our time is limited, and that, that, that we would seek to live to walk righteously in this world, representing you, putting on your armor, seeking what is true and right, proclaiming the gospel of peace through your power, through putting, uh, putting you on, through, through Christ. For Lord, give us that and, and, and empower us this morning as we turn now uh, to communion in Christ's name. Amen.